Let's pray. God, we thank you, and uh, Lord, just stop and praise you. God, you are good. Lord, you are faithful. Lord, we thank you that in your sovereignty you chose to, um, Lord, heal Larry again. Um, Lord, we don't understand all the reasons why you allow things to happen in our lives, but we do know that you get glory from all of it. Lord, that you use all things for our good. And so, God, thank you as we look through the pages of Scripture, we see for thousands and thousands of years, you have always kept your promises. God, you are true and trustworthy. And thank you, God, for being present with the Lawler family. Thank you for the grace that you've shown Larry, for the strength you've given his body. Thank you for using the chemo to heal him, and we give you the utmost praise and glory for it. God, we do pray that you'd continue to strengthen him over the next couple of weeks. See him through this, we pray. And guys, we look to your word. Lord, give us eyes to see this text. Lord, I pray that you'd encourage us through your word that is alive and active. Lord, your word is sharper than any doubts that we have. Your word is sharper than any sin that we might be going through. So God, pierce us today so we might see Jesus, we pray in his name. Amen. Well, this morning we actually finish the last discourse uh, in the Gospel of John. John chapters 13 through 16 has been known as the last discourse. This is Jesus' uh, really final conversation that he has with his disciples before uh, he goes to the cross and dies. This last long dialogue began in the upper room now as they're headed to the, the Kidron Valley where Jesus will pray in the Garden of Gethsemane in John chapter uh, 17. Over the last several weeks, one of the aspects of the last discourse that I've tried to highlight for us is the condition of the disciples in this moment. I don't think we can overestimate how devastated they were when they heard that Jesus was about to leave them and depart and go back to the Father. I think it's important to grasp that because it helps us uh, both connect and relate with the disciples and also to understand just how powerful the truths that Jesus shares with the disciples actually are. And I love this last section here, these last couple of verses in the last discourse, because I think we have the clearest display of the condition of the disciples. I think if we were to come up with a diagnosis of what the disciples were feeling at this point in time, I would describe it as confused and discouraged. And we see that most clearly in verses 16 through 19. We see really because of verse 16, the perplexity of the disciples is then expressed in verses 17 and 18. Look with me at verse 16. Jesus says, this is really the apex of perplexity for them, Jesus says, a little while and you will see me no longer. And again, a little while and you will see me. Now, according to verse 18, the, the two words there, little while, is what is tripping up the disciples here. And throughout this last discourse, Jesus has introduced some new concepts to them. He has shared with them some really hard and difficult news. But it's here that the disciples almost throw their hands up in the air, and they're utterly confounded at what Jesus is talking about. For the disciples here, I think the, the, the apex of their confusion is this. They cannot wrap their minds around the fact that if Jesus is going to establish his new kingdom on the earth, why is he going to leave them? And if he's going to leave them, why, after a little while, is he then going to return? Like, they can't wrap their minds around this, this Jesus who is going to be the Messiah, why he has come and why he's about to leave them. 
Well, in verse 16, what Jesus is, is trying to say here is that his departure is referring to his death on the cross, and the little while is really just a couple of days later, he's going to resurrect back to life, and the disciples are going to see him again. All right, now, Jesus doesn't say that with that level of clarity. And, and, and in fact, Jesus is picking up on the fact that they're still confused. And I love this about Jesus because Jesus names their confusion in verses 18 and 19. Jesus doesn't ignore it. Jesus is not angered by their confusion, but Jesus leans into it. And I love this because this is so helpful for us as you and I wrestle with questions of the, of the faith, perplexities of the faith, as we wrestle with doubts, Jesus does not love us less because we have questions and doubts. That those things do not become barriers in our relationship with God, but they serve as an opportunity to invite Jesus into that space so that we might see him more clearly. I think that's exactly what is happening in this passage, as the disciples are perplexed, they're discouraged, and Jesus leans into that in order to provide encouragement. Now, what does Jesus do here? What does Jesus say as far as the remedy for the disciples' discouragement and perplexity? He talks about joy. He talks about joy. Well, Jesus doesn't really even answer this question fully, but he immediately goes to this concept of joy. Look at verse 20. Jesus says, truly, truly, I say to you, you will weep and lament, but the world will rejoice. You will be sorrowful, but your sorrow will turn into joy. Now, joy is not a new topic in the last discourse. If you remember John chapter 15, verse 11, Jesus said, these things I have spoken to you that my joy may be in you and that your joy may be full. But it's in this passage that I think Jesus explains what joy actually looks like and what joy actually is because he, he uses the word joy or rejoice over six times in this one passage. But the question I want to pose for us this morning is, what is joy? Like if joy is the remedy for the discouraged disciples, then we better understand it. Like the, the word joy, I think, appears over and over and over again throughout the Bible, but how would you define joy? I feel like joy is one of those things where it's easier to experience than to explain. And yet the Bible is filled with kind of painting a picture about joy. For example, the, the Psalms are filled with references to joy. Let me give you a couple of examples. The psalmist writes, weeping may tarry for the night, but joy comes with the morning, Psalm 30. Or how about Psalm 1611? You make known to me the path of life. In your presence, there is fullness of joy. There are lots of other psalms about joy, but when you go to the New Testament, joy is all over the place again. Joy is a fruit of the Spirit, Galatians 5.22. We're also in, uh, in Philippians 4 actually commanded to experience joy where Paul says, rejoice in the Lord always. Again, I will say rejoice. I think joy is a normative experience when thinking about Jesus and our relationship with him. 1 Peter 1.8 says, Though you have not seen him, Jesus, but you love him, though you do not now see him, you believe in him and rejoice with joy that is inexpressible and filled 
with glory. Look, these are just a few of examples. There are a lot more throughout the Bible as it relates to joy. And yet, as I was thinking about this concept of joy, I was wrestling with the question of, if joy is all over the Bible, then why is joy not a more common and normal experience in the Christian life? Have, have, you ever, have you ever asked yourself the question, why am I not a more joyful person? It's a really important question. Like if, if joy is a fruit of the Spirit, if joy is commanded in Philippians 4, if joy is supposed to be this normal experience when thinking about Jesus, then why are we not more joyful people? There's all kinds of reasons for that. There's all kinds of uh, perhaps barriers to why we're not more joyful people. But one of the biggest ones, I think, is that we misunderstand joy. I think we confuse it with other things. Let me give you four, I think, common misunderstandings about joy. I think one of the biggest ones is that joy is often confused with happiness. Did you know that the world record for the longest kept smile is over 10 hours? 10 hours long. Lisa Lester, she sat there and she smiled for 10 straight hours. And yet to state the obvious, smiling and joy are not the same thing, right? And yet we, we tend to confuse the two. We tend to confuse a happy person with a joyful person. We might say, oh, uh, Betty Sue is such a joyful person. Well, why do you think that? Oh, she's just smiling all the time. And yet they're not the same thing. Happiness, like a smile, is temporary. But joy is eternally grounded. Happiness is a feeling, but joy is a state of the soul. Happiness meets a surface need, but joy meets a deep need. You can think of happiness like a thermometer. It registers conditions. But thinking about joy, joy is more like a thermostat. It regulates conditions. I think happiness oftentimes tends to disappear in times of suffering. And yet, biblically speaking, joy grows and intensifies in, in times of suffering. In fact, I would go as far as to say that if you know somebody who's going through suffering or trials, I think it's almost cruel to tell them to be happy. It's almost unloving to say, hey, you just need to smile more. Why, why, aren't, you, why aren't you more happy during this time of trial? And the reason, we're not commanded to be happy. We're not expected to be happy. That, that song, happy all the time, where I'm uh, in right, out right, up right, down right, happy all the time, I don't think it's a very biblical song to sing. Not commanded to, and Heidi's not in the room. I don't think we sing that song in children's ministry. I don't think it's a biblical song. We're not commanded to be happy. And yet, many times we fall into this trap of pursuing happiness over joy because there's immediate gratification with happiness. So there's more shortcuts to experiencing happiness. It's harder and, and deeper to experiencing joy. Happiness is easier, but it is fleeting. Second misunderstanding about joy is that we sometimes think that joy is found in my circumstances. We tend to say, maybe not out loud, but maybe in our minds and in our hearts, that if I'm in a good season of life, no hardship, no trial, then I'm joyful. If I'm financially secure, health is good, relationships are okay, life is good, and joy is full. 
Now, the problem with this is that if joy is in your circumstances, you will eventually become a victim of your circumstances. And the reason for that is because our circumstances are constantly changing, right? Like your job, your finances can change in a hurry. Your health can change in a hurry. We are such fragile creatures who think we're in control of our lives. Like that's, that's one of the biggest illusions, I think, that the enemy tries to confuse us with is that we are in control, and yet all of us are one second away, one phone call away from our circumstances betraying us. And yet here's the good news, is that joy can not only coexist with hardship, but joy can actually flourish and grow in the midst of hardship. And the reason for that is because the Bible does not tell us to put our joy in our circumstances that are always changing. The Bible tells us to rejoice in the Lord who never changes. Hebrews 13, 18, Jesus is the same yesterday, today, and forevermore. You guys awake this morning? You with me? All right, here's another one. Joy, another misconception is joy is optional. Joy is optional. See, sometimes we think that joy is something that we experience passively. We we tend to think that joy is something that happens to us that we have no control over. And so if we think that we're joyless, we, we tend to think that there's nothing that I can do by the act of my own will to change that. Like joy is involuntary. Like joy is optional. We think that, yeah, I, I want to experience it, I, I, I want to be joyful, but we sometimes think that we can't decide by the act of the will to change what we are feeling as it relates to joy. And yet throughout the New Testament, the idea of joy is actually seen as a command. Philippians 4, rejoice in the Lord always. It, it's not optional. And so what that means is that if, you, if, you're not, if you're not experiencing joy, that not only means that you're settling for something less than what God has for you, but if you're not experiencing joy, that's actually disobedience and sinful. And yet, do we think about joy in those terms? Like, we understand other commands of the Bible, like, do not murder. We understand that, okay, I'm not going to kill anybody because I don't want to sin, but thinking about joy as a command. And if I'm not joyful, then am I actually in sin? No, it can't mean that, Chris. Joy is optional. Joy is dependent on my circumstances. Joy is dependent on how I feel or, or, or even on the weather. See, when we have the mindset that joy is optional, joy is involuntary, it creates kind of a passive posture towards joy, and I think that's unhelpful. Here's the last thing I'll point out here, is that um, sometimes we think that joy and unbelief can actually coexist. I think this is a big one. We go through something in life, and it causes us to perhaps question or, uh, or doubt God, like we experience suffering or sorrow or disappointment, and instead of trusting God in it, we begin to doubt him through it. And if we're not careful, I think unbelief can start to creep into our hearts, which will always rob us of our joy. Unbelief is the greatest thief to our joy. In other words, I don't think you can live in unbelief and have vibrant joy in the Lord. I don't think you can doubt 
that God is good, that God is trustworthy, and have fullness of joy. See, we sometimes wonder, why do I not have more consistent joy in my life? And yet, what tends to happen is, is that joy's been pushed out of our hearts because sin and unbelief is residing there. The means by which joy grows is through fervent trust in the Lord. Look, there are all kinds of, of barriers to joy. I'm sure you're thinking about some of those in your own mind, what those look like in your own life. And I think it's important to consider those barriers before actually pursuing it. See, for Jesus here with the disciples, Jesus, according to verse 6 of chapter 16, he's noticing that sorrow has begun to fill their hearts, not joy. And the reason for that is because of this lack of belief, this lack of trust among the disciples and Jesus. And so Jesus is kind of naming that barrier. And in verses 20 through 33, I think he provides the remedy of explaining what joy actually looks like in our lives. So let me point out a couple of things of what joy is from verses 20 through 20, uh, 33. There's four things. Number one, Jesus talks about joy as something that eclipses sorrow. Look at verse 20 again with me. This is really important. He says, truly, truly, I say to you, you will weep and lament, but the world will rejoice. You will be sorrowful, but your sorrow will turn into joy. Now, in this verse, Jesus is explaining a role reversal that's about to take place, that the world, once Jesus dies on the cross, the world will rejoice and the disciples will weep and lament. But after a little while, uh, it's kind of code for after the resurrection, when the disciples see Jesus again, they will be the ones that rejoice. And yet notice that last phrase in verse 20. It gives us a lot of insight into joy. Jesus says, you will be sorrowful, but your sorrow will turn into joy. Notice that Jesus does not say that your sorrow will be replaced by joy. No, no, he says your sorrow will turn into joy. Now, how does that happen? Well, how does sorrow turn into joy? Well, sorrow turns into joy by first understanding that the opposite of your joy is actually not sorrow, but unbelief. The opposite of joy is not hardship, but it is a failure to trust and believe in Jesus. I think sorrow is eclipsed by joy when you understand that God, who is the source of your joy, will oftentimes not remove the sorrow from your life, but he will use it to grow your trust and your belief in Jesus, which will give you fullness of joy. It's really important to understand. In fact, verse 21, Jesus uses an illustration to bring this home. Jesus talks about a woman who, uh, who's giving birth, and, and all the intense pain of, of labor is eventually transformed into joy with this new baby. And yet the reality is, is that there's no baby without the pain. In a very profound way, the pain of labor intensifies the joy of that new baby. See, when that woman's going through labor, she's saying, this is hard, this is painful, and yet that woman in the midst of labor is exercising faith and belief that on the other side of this will be joy. See, in the same way, Jesus is saying that sorrow turns into joy when the source 
of your joy has a greater hold on your heart than the source of your sorrow. That sorrow is eclipsed by joy than when what's on the throne of your hearts is God and not the sorrow. See, sometimes we think that we'll experience this deep abiding joy when we have no trials and no hardships. That's when we'll have joy, right? When the sorrow has left, that's when I'll have this fullness of joy. And yet there's two problems with that. Number one is that that's not very realistic. If you've lived five minutes in this life, you know that you're either in a storm or a storm is coming, right? And if this is something that's commanded, it cannot be dependent on not having a trial in your life. The second reason is that's it's really not what the Bible teaches at all. Like consider James 1, 2 for a moment where James says, consider it pure joy, my brothers, when what? When you don't have any trials? When life is easy? No, he says when you meet trials of various kinds. So the Bible teaches that deep abiding joy is born in the furnace of sorrow. I love how Sam Storms puts this. He says, that joy is not necessarily the absence of suffering, but joy is the presence of God. It's really important. See, if you're, if you're lacking consistent joy in your life, the Bible says don't blame your suffering. Don't blame your circumstances. Don't blame the life that you wish that you had at that moment. In fact, just the opposite is true. The Bible says that the suffering in your life is actually helping to produce joy in your life. See, there's something about suffering and sorrow that has a way of revealing and exposing what is really on the throne of our hearts. Like, when, when life is easy, when, when we're not going through any type of sorrow, it's, it's harder to discern, what am I really trusting in? Well, what's, what's really on the throne of my heart right now, right? But when you're in times of suffering and sorrow, it has a way of, of revealing your desperate dependency upon God. Like, we... we all the time, all the time, we always need God. But when you're in times of suffering and sorrow, that's when you feel your need for God. And when you pursue him out of that desperate dependency, that's when you experience joy. See, look what's happening in this passage. Jesus is telling his disciples that their sorrow will turn into joy because in just a few days from now, they are going to see not only with their physical eyes, but they are going to see with the spiritual eyes of their heart the risen Savior, Jesus Christ. And Jesus is saying that that process of seeing and treasuring Jesus is the mechanism by which your sorrow is transformed into joy. And College Park, that is true for us today as it was 2,000 years ago. That when your source of joy is seeing Jesus Christ as this beautiful treasure that he is, and, and you view him as bigger, as more powerful, as stronger than the sorrow in your life, that's when Jesus transforms that sorrow into joy. Look, Jesus is worthy of that. See, Jesus is about to stand before the disciples a few, uh, a few days from now as the victorious king of kings. He's about to stand before them as the one who has conquered death, defeated the enemy, has dealt with their sin. And for Jesus, he's saying, when, when you see me in that light as bigger than your sorrow, that's when you'll actually experience joy. And I think it's true for us today. When we see Jesus in that way, 
that there's not a more powerful source of joy. Why? Because knowing that your sins are forgiven is the most important thing that we can experience in this life. And the disciples are about to experience that. Secondly, another thing that I think Jesus points out here about joy is that joy must be fought for. I think verse 22 might be my favorite in this passage because what Jesus says here is that when joy eclipses your sorrow because Jesus is your highest treasure, he says something happens in verse 22. He says then, no one will take your joy from you. In other words, when Jesus is your highest treasure, there's no hardship, no circumstance, nothing in this world that can rob you of your joy but that isn't to say they're, gonna, they're not going to try. See, Jesus says no one's going to take your joy, but suffering will try to rob you of your joy. Sin and your doubts will try to steal your joy. See, what Jesus is saying here, he's not promising a, a life of ease. He's not saying, hey, just become a Christian, and, and, and automatically you're going to have this fullness of joy all of the time. No, he's saying, when, when I'm your highest treasure, you're going to experience this fullness of joy. But if you don't fight to keep Jesus as your highest treasure, that fullness of joy will start to leak from your heart. And so look, all of the Christian life is basically a fight for joy in Christ. It's a fight to keep Jesus on the throne of our hearts. That's, that's why I think the, the, the idea of, of, of joy is commanded in Philippians 4. It's because we have a real enemy who wants to steal our joy from us. And Jesus is saying, man, if you're fighting for this, if you're keeping me on the throne of your hearts, no one's going to be able to take the joy from you. And so what does it mean to fight for joy? What does that look like practically? Let me give you a couple of ways to fight for joy in your life. Number one, resolve to attack all known sin in your life. Right? Like if sin sabotages our joy in Jesus by trying to convince us to settle for something less, then identify it and remove it from your life, right? Like this, this idea of, of yeah, I'm, I'm not perfect. I'm not going to be perfect in this life. Therefore, I'm just going to make kind of a peace treaty with some areas of sin in my life is so damaging to experiencing robust joy in our life. Look, no one's perfect. I'm not, uh, I'm not you know, you know, uh, trying to exhort us to this perfectionist idea. But I'm saying your pursuit of removing the sin as best as you can by the Spirit of God is a way that joy will have room in your heart to grow so you can experience it more consistently. Secondly, another way that we can fight for joy is to realize that the battle is primarily a fight to see God for who he is. See, fighting for joy means seeing God as the beautiful, all-satisfying treasure that he is. I think the more clearly the eyes of our hearts see God in his word, the smaller our sorrow will be. Thirdly here, another way that we can fight for joy is to spend time with godly people who help you see God and who are also fighting the fight. Right, like this fight for joy, this pursuit of joy can't be done in kind of an individualistic way. That God has given us community. The disciples had each other to fight for us. And so for us, especially when we're weak, we need others to encourage us and to inspire us 
to fight for joy. So no one will take your joy from you. Number three, another thing that Jesus says about joy is that it is the expressed intimacy with God. Jesus, in verses 23 through 28, explains to his disciples the connection between praying and fullness of joy. Look with me at verses 23 and 24. Jesus says, In that day you will ask nothing of me. Truly, truly, I say to you, whatever you ask of the Father in my name, he will give it to you. Until now you have asked nothing in my name. Ask and you will receive that your joy may be full. You see the connection there? Jesus is saying that your joy may be full when what? When you are praying, when you are in the presence of God, communing with, joy, with, with who he is. That's when joy begins to flood your heart. And Jesus in verses 23 through 28 is saying to his disciples, he's going to the Father, and so Jesus won't be praying to the Father on the earth, But now the disciples can experience this new access to the Father in their prayer life. So Jesus is explaining this new kind of intimacy that not only the disciples, but for us, that we can experience as we pray. And as we pray, and as we approach God through Jesus, we experience this kind of joy. But notice the type of intimacy that is is all throughout this passage. Look at verse 27, for example. Jesus is talking about this new kind of access, this new type of of intimacy as we pray to the Father. And he says, all of this is happening for the Father himself loves you. Don't miss this here. This is the first time that Jesus tells his disciples that the Father loves them personally throughout John's gospel. Now, Jesus has talked about this general love that God has for the whole world, John 3.16, He's even talked about God's love for his own people, but here's the first time that Jesus says, the Father himself loves you. I love these five words. I had to stop and meditate on these five words. I don't know if there's a more powerful string of five words in all of the Bible than these. The Father himself loves you. Look, I wonder who needs to hear that this morning. I wonder who needs to hear these five words and not hear it cognitively, not not even hear it like theologically, but who needs to hear these five words that the Father himself loves you in the deep places of your heart today? Do you need to hear Jesus whispering these words in the deep place of your heart where guilt lives? You know, guilt that reminds you of all the bad things that you've done. Do you need to hear Jesus say, the Father himself loves you. Maybe the deep places of your heart where shame lives. That that voice that says you not only do bad things, but you are bad. That, That you are worthless. That you will never measure up. Jesus is whispering in your heart today, the Father himself loves you. What about the deep place of your heart where chronic achievement resides? You know, that voice that says, You are what you do. God loves you because of how you perform for him. Do you need to hear Jesus say, the Father himself loves you? Look, I think that your joy in God will only be as full 
as to the degree that you experience the fact that God loves you deep within your heart. Look, here's the best part about God's love, is that you've done nothing to earn it or deserve it. As one theologian put it, my deepest awareness of myself is that I am deeply loved by Jesus and I've done nothing to earn it or deserve it. Think about that. The one who knows everything, the one who knows all of the sin that you've committed, and yet Jesus stands before his disciples and he stands next to you today and he says, the Father himself loves you. Not because of you, but despite you. And I think this fullness of joy rests in our heart the greater that we believe that, not up here, but also deep within our hearts and with our souls. So joy is the expression of that kind of intimacy that Jesus wants us to have with him and the Father. It gets better. Here's number four. Last thing, we'll close with this. Is that joy is the result of Christ's victory. Verses 29 through 33, Jesus is finally getting to the end of his, of his long discourse. And it seems as though as Jesus is trying to provide some type of summary statement for this whole long conversation. And in it, Jesus explains the power behind this kind of joy that's not of this world. Now, though the disciples here, in verse 29, they think they now fully understand it. You know, but Jesus knows that they will eventually desert him. Peter will deny him. And so you can almost read verse 31 like this. It's almost like Jesus is saying, are you sure you really believe? Like Jesus knows what's about, to, what's about to happen. And so Jesus does want to encourage them. And so look with me at verse 33, what he says. He says, I have said these things to you, that in me you may have peace. In the world you will have tribulation but take heart, I have overcome the world. Like, I don't know if there are better words that Jesus could have chosen to leave his disciples with in order to encourage their perplexed and discouraged hearts. Like, essentially what Jesus is saying here is he's saying, disciples, you're about to watch me get flogged, beaten, and crucified on a cross. The world is going to come after you. The world is going to reject you. You're going to suffer. You're going to experience hardship. You're going to wonder if all of this is worth it. And so Jesus says, take heart or be courageous for I have overcome. See, Jesus is saying, look, you're going to think that I've been defeated. You're going to think that all of this was for nothing. And yet he says, take heart for I have the victory. And look, try to apply these words to your sorrow today, to your type of suffering today, because this is what suffering does to us. Suffering wants to convince us that Jesus has lost. Suffering wants to convince us that there's an alternative path to joy, that Jesus isn't greater, that Jesus hasn't overcome, and yet Jesus declares to us today, I have overcome. Look, we need these words. We need to preach these words over our souls, no matter if you're in suffering or not. Jesus has the victory. Look, I love uh, how D.A. Carson explains these verses. He says that Jesus has overcome the world means victory. 
It means Jesus has conquered the world in the same way he has defeated the princes of this world. That Jesus' point is that by his death, he has made the world's opposition pointless. The The decisive battle has been waged and won. The world continues its wretched attacks, but those who are in Christ share the victory he has won. They cannot be harmed by the world's evil, and they know who triumphs in the end. That from this, they take heart and begin to share his peace. So here's the connection to joy. I think Jesus' victory creates a type of courageous joy that we can experience today. See, the type of courageous joy that stands in the middle of suffering and profound brokenness and declares the source of my joy is not in in the hope that all of these things will be fixed and resolved, but the type of courageous joy declares in the midst of brokenness that the source of my joy is the king of kings who has overcome and who has the complete victory, who will fix all things, maybe not in this life, but in the life that is to come when he makes all things And that type of joy is courageous because it stands in the midst of sorrow and suffering and says, there is one thing that you cannot take away from me, and that is my eternal position in Jesus is secure. That I'm loved by God, I'm chosen by God, and I'm in his family, and I'll be with him forever. And the question I think Jesus leaves the disciples with, it's not in here, but it feels like a question. And it's a good question for us to wrestle with is, Is that enough for us? Is that enough, knowing that your eternal position in Jesus is fully secure, or is your joy a little bit dependent on getting this thing fixed right now? That's the fight for joy we have. Let's pray. God, we thank you for this wonderful passage. God, we thank you for the power that's in it. God, we thank you that Jesus has overcome, that we don't have to wonder or question if Jesus has the victory. God, we thank you that we don't look to our circumstances to know that he has the victory, but we look to your word. God, we thank you that there's power in trusting in Jesus. So God, I pray that you would make us joyful people, not because our lives are easy, but because Jesus has won. We pray this in the glory of Jesus' name.